Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box, with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, you're listening to FBI Radio 94.5, streaming online or on the podcast. This is Out of the Box. I'm Mia Hull, and this is the place where each week I sit down with one person to walk through the stories and songs that have meant something special to them in their life. But it hasn't been my voice on air for the last little while. Isaac Ortlip, Jamie Taylor Nielsen, Malika Gazula, and Deb Marcus all filled in on the show for me while I was gone. And if you haven't listened to their episodes yet, you absolutely should. They are so good. But I'm back now. I'm feeling rejuvenated, and I'm so excited for all the interviews I'm going to bring you on Out of the Box. Before we get into today's one, I want to acknowledge that right now I'm broadcasting on unceded land belonging to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'd like to pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any First Nations person listening right now. Gadigal people have been coming together to share stories and songs on this land since the beginning of time. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. If you've listened to FBI Radio before, you might be familiar with today's guest. He was actually on air last Tuesday hosting his normal show, Wild Card. Yes, I am joined by Stuart Coop, and he is so much more than just the host of Wild Card on FBI. He is a music journalist, author, band manager, promoter, publicist. The list goes on. He's just put out his 14th book and first memoir. It's called Shake Some Action, and it walks through Stuart's very big story of living and working. Working in the music industry, Stu has so many stories and I'm hoping to scratch the surface a little bit today and of course play the songs that have meant something special to Stu along the way. He's got such an impressive track list lined up for us. Stuart Coop, what an honour. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, it is fabulous to be on Out of the Box. <laughs> I love FBI, you know that, uh, and I love being on the radio much more than I did when I first started trying to do radio. So you know it's a it's always an absolute pleasure i never thought i'd be walking through the uh, the fbi doors every week for what is rapidly approaching 20 years yeah that's a lot of times i've opened that front door yeah <laughs> Your career as a radio host goes back much further than 20 years, which is something that we'll talk about throughout the show today. You've also just told the story of your life through a memoir, Stuart. It's called Shake Some Action. It's out this past week. I mean, you are already an author. You've written many books. Why did you now, at this point in your life, decide to turn your story into a memoir? Uh, It wasn't my idea. Uh, This is my 14th book. I have a pile of them at home. It's starting to look kind of impressive. Um, and so I I really never imagined writing my life story or, or a memoir. I you know, I still wonder, is it that interesting? And that's that's for readers to to work out themselves. But uh, it it came about really because I'd finished doing a biography of Paul Kelly, who I used to manage in the nineteen eighties. And I was looking around for something to do. You know, I always like having a few things that I'm working on. And uh, I thought, oh, new book, new book. What am I going to write about? And so I, I met up with a publisher friend of mine, and I had a whole bunch of what I thought were genius-level ideas. And at the end of the meeting, he just said, have you ever thought of writing a memoir? And I said, no. And he said, well, you should. And so he pestered me nicely for every couple of months for about a year and eventually I, I I weakened well came around to thinking it wasn't such a bad idea did a, did a two page outline 
Mm. Uh, then he said, can you write a couple of chapters? Write a couple of chapters. It passed all the required meetings at Penguin, and so I sat down to, to write it, mm. um, and enjoyably so, because normally when I write a book, I would do between 70 and 100 interviews, and uh, and the good thing about writing a memoir is you only have to listen to the voice in your head and mm. hope that your memory is as good as you think it is. So it, it, the writing was fun. The writing is always fun. Um, and the last four months of a book is always hell. Why? Oh, it's, it's, it's the worst. But now I know what's coming because uh, I used to go, oh, I've written it. And, you know, I... I it's interesting that, you know, I'm, I'm 14 books down the track. I still type with one finger. I have appalling spelling and absolutely no notion of grammar and how it should work. Um, and so I, I just put words down. I, you know, I, when I'm writing a book, I'll write initially about eighty or 90,000 words. And I call it like word undercoat. It's like painting a, a room or a house. You know, you're splashing words everywhere. And then later on, you come in and finesse it and turn it into something that someone you know, is going to live in or, or you know, mm. whatever. Uh, and, and I'm like that with writing. So, you know, I, I, I love writing and I'm quick at it. And when I'm working on a book, I work seven days a week and I write about three or 4,000 words a day. But they're rough. And, and then when it comes to that finessing, that's just an absolute nightmare. I think something quite remarkable about this book and something that you touched on just now is that even though it has these stories of your illustrious career as a music journalist, author, band manager, promoter, publicist, radio presenter, and all of these celebrities that you've come in touch with over your life, you said just before that you know, you're a person that types with one finger and maybe your spelling's not up to scratch, but you've achieved so much in your life. And so to me, the book is more broadly about hope and aspiration. Was that a narrative that kind of emerged for you while you were putting your stories together? Yeah, I, yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, it, any memoir is going to cause... You know, of course, by its very nature, you'd look back uh, and and you you know and you and you put you try to put things in context and and you start to see where things sort of fit in. Sometimes it's not always easy going. You know, in this book, you know, I had to you know talk about you know my work ethic, which is incredible. But you know, there's there's been a price that's come with that work ethic you know I haven't been the greatest dad to my children for instance you know who the book is dedicated to um so you know I had to I had to deal with that I you know I had to reflect on my relationship with my mum and dad who both passed away now uh and what it was like growing up what sort of kid was I you know was I that much of a pain in the proverbial you know was I was I a good son to have um that sort of that sort of thing. So, you, you know, you're, you're looking at that, you know, you're looking back and going, you know, I have a very melancholic side, which I write about in the book. You know, where did that come from? You know, was it genetic? Uh, was it, you know, some particular life experience? You know, where, where did it come from? You know, I, I deal a lot with, uh, you know, uh, you know, my, my drug and alcohol intake over... 
um, you know, 40-odd years uh, and the fact that, you know, um, you know, I, I don't any longer and haven't for a long time taken drugs or, or drunk. But, but you know, and, and you, you look back on what impact that has on your, on your creativity, um, more impact, I realised, than I th- than I thought it did until I stopped, um, you know, and you reflect on, you know, what sort of human being you've been, you know, what sort of partner you've been, what sort of parent, as I said, you've been. So so that stuff inevitably comes to the surface and some of it's, a, you know, it's confronting. Uh, and there's also, you know, the, the other thing that runs through this book is that, yes, what overrides my... Um, Inadequacies when it may come to the English language uh, is an unbridled fandom. Mm. You know, I'm just you know I'd like to think uh, you know that I'm the still the same excitable kid that you know, grew up in Launceston in Tasmania in the early 1960s and and fell in love with music. Stuart Coop, we are talking about your book, Shake Some Action, your new memoir. And yeah, we were talking about aspiration and dreams as a through line in your book. And I was wondering where that aspiration comes from. It's very clear that it comes from passion and an incredible fandom for music. So it's so nice to have you on Out of the Box today to walk through the songs that have defined your life. It is a Thursday We've got Friday on our mind. That's the first song you've chosen to play on the show today. Why did this make it into your track list? Uh, because it was, I mean, if there's any one song to thank or to blame for my obsession, it's Friday on my mind by the Easy Beats. Uh, it's the first song that I fell completely in love with as a you know 12-year-old. Uh, it's the first seven-inch vinyl 45 that I bought after I'd saved up a dollar and five cents with pocket money, which I earned doing a paper round in uh, in my neighbourhood in in Launceston, uh, and it was it was and remains just a really exhilarating couple of minutes of music. You know, it's also got a social conscience, you know, undertone. You know, working for the rich man. You know, da, 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 you know, looking forward to Friday. You know, the drudgery of 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 the nine to five working life, which didn't, of course, mean anything to me as a twelve year old. Um, but you know, I, I had cause, of course, over the years to reflect on it. So, so I picked it just because it's that song, and the moment you put it on today, you know, I will get chills up and down my arms. And I, you know, nothing has diminished the power of that song. And the and, and the book Shakes Some Action starts with. Again, you know, there, there was about nine years between me first hearing Bruce Springsteen uh, in Launceston and then sitting backstage with him in Paris in 1981, interviewing him. And a lot of that conversation with Bruce Springsteen was about ended up being about Friday on my mind because I said to him, you know, is there any Australian song that you really love? And he said, Friday on my mind, you know, one of the greatest songs ever, blah, blah, blah. And he said, but I can't learn the chords. And clearly I know very little about the construction of music because I always thought Friday on my mind was pretty simple. Uh, and then I came back from from Paris and I said to a bunch of musician friends of mine, I said, Friday on my mind, that's pretty simple, isn't it? And they said, Stuart, you know nothing about music. <laughs> if you try and play those chords. And so it was interesting that the last time Bruce Springsteen came to Australia, you know, more than 40 years after we'd had that conversation in, in Paris, he started one of his Sydney shows with Friday on My Mind. 
He learnt it. He's obviously learnt those <laughs> chords. So that's why I picked it. It's the Easy Beats on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5, chosen by the great Stuart Coop. This is Friday on My Mind. Today I might be mad. You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB or if you're listening via our website or if you're listening via the podcast or on the website, fbiradio.com. I'm Mia Hull. I am joined by the host of Wildcard, Stuart Coop, who is also an author, band manager, music journalist, a, a man of many talents. And he's joining me right off the back of releasing his memoir, Shake Some Action. And to give you a bit of a taste of what the memoir might include we are here to talk through the story of Stuart's life and I know you first and foremost as a radio presenter Stuart so let's get into that chapter of your life where were you in life when you started to pay attention to the radio I was about 12 13 uh, and my I had a I had a crystal radio which will be nothing to most people listening to FBI but it was a little sort of contraption and you used to attach it to a telephone back when phones were attached to walls and, and it would enable you pick, to pick up radio signals and so sitting in Launceston I could listen to uh, ABC radio particularly Room to Move which was presented by Chris Winter uh, and you know and a lot of what we Tasmanians still call mainland radio stations. <laughs> and, and of course, I listened to my local radio station, 70, 70X, which is a little bit more adventurous, and 7LA, which was a little bit more conservative. So that was where I found out about most of the music that um, enthralled me as, as a kid. I mean, that was the only way to find out. There were no music TV shows. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember when there wasn't even television. Mm-hmm. Um, it does date me a little bit, doesn't it? You don't look that uh, old, Stuart. Uh, 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 thank you. <laughs> Keep talking like that. And um, so, so it was was radio then, and it's radio now. Uh, you know, I I just developed this this love affair with with the sound of radio, with radio presenters and their approaches and what they picked, how they talked about. Music and and I still believe radio is incredibly important. People go, oh, you know, the 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 great days of radio are over, and and I don't I don't subscribe to that. You know, anyone can anyone can put together a streaming playlist, but nothing beats still a curated radio show where someone has done the heavy lifting, and someone is sitting behind a microphone going, you might not agree. Uh, but I think that this is a song that you might enjoy, this is a song you might enjoy, this is a song you might enjoy. Um, I ended up doing some radio in uh, in the mid-1980s, uh, and I did uh, well, I did two stints. I did something very, very brief at 2SER, a show called From Funk to Punk, uh, and for about six or eight months I was a guest every Sunday night on to Triple M uh, for their album show. And I was terrible at both. You know, I, I didn't... You know, it's one thing to listen to radio, but it's another thing to to be skilled at presenting it. 
and you know I stumbled over my words I you know I, I hadn't mastered or you know maybe I haven't still but I hadn't learned how to put you know a coherent sentence together certainly haven't learned to be concise um, even now but you know I, I it was only when I came to FBI that I started to learn some of those skills and you know it goes back to to everything that we're talking about you know I, I just thought here's an opportunity to be on this incredible at the time new community radio station and, and share that passion and share that passion and that's I went wow you know and, and again if, if I ever run into anyone who does radio and they start complaining about it I go, you do, you know, you've got us. We are so lucky. Mm. It's know, so and- affirming to hear you talk like that, Stuart, because as you know, everyone who hosts radio at FBI Radio is a volunteer. And mm. I feel like a lot of the time when you try to explain that to your friends and family, they're always like, what are you doing that for? You don't get paid for it. It's really hard to describe the, the passion you feel or the privilege you feel to be able to jump on the mic and share Um, and it's obviously a passion that you feel deeply you've been here for 20 years now and yeah you're joining me at a pretty special time for FBI it's right off the back of you releasing your memoir but right before we celebrate our 20th birthday on the 29th of August you were actually here on the day of our first ever broadcast can you take me there what was that day like oh it was pretty exciting I mean I wasn't on it I I the day that we we went to air, I never imagined that I would be a broadcaster. Um, I had a young guy uh, doing work experience for me at my record label, and he was also volunteering here at FBI, helping catalogue CDs in in the library. And, and he said, you know, do you mind if I go into FBI because the station's going to air today and there's going to be a, a party, you know, celebration. And I said, of course, I don't mind. And I said, you know, I might come too, <laughs> you know, because I might know a few people and it'll just be fun to be here. So, so I walked into our, re- well, f- pushed my way into our reception area, uh, which must have had about, uh, you know, a couple of hundred people. Um, there was a band set up near where our reception desk is, which was, you know, Dave McCormack from custard and uh, and a whole bunch of other you know inner city luminaries and uh and as we went you know and everyone was milling around and yeah it was a fantastic atmosphere it is on youtube i think there's a little bit of footage of of that day uh and they played uh they played turn up your radio which is a great song obviously about radio by the originally by the master's apprentices from the 1960s australian band uh and then it cut to jess keely and you know she FBI was officially, after all of that fundraising and license things and everything that the station had to go through for such a long time before everything fell into place. Um, and suddenly, yeah, FBI was, was on air. And it, it, it was completely exhilarating. You know, Sydney, of course, had other community radio stations. Um, yeah, uh, but there, there was... I guess there was something about, you know, the newness of it. I guess it would have been like being around, you know, the day that um, that Double J went to air back in the 70s with, well, what was their first song? Skyhooks, You Don't Like Me, You Only Like Me Because I'm Good in Bed. Uh, you know, everyone remembers those, those first pivotal songs that are played on a radio station. And um, 
And that was the feeling here. Everyone was wandering around drinking at a fairly early hour of the day. I think it was <laughs> like 11 o'clock or 11.30 or something like that. Um, and uh, so it was, it was just fantastic to be here and to be part of it. And uh, I never, of course, thought that I would be anything more than a listener. And I was a happy listener. Uh, and then, uh, and then Megan made that call. But it was it was interesting in that first first year because as part of my record label, I had a little you know, high fidelity midlife crisis record shop in um, in Lewisham, and I used to have people coming in and they 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 say you know have you got a copy of the, and they'd name a particular artist or record, and I just look at them and go you're an FBI listener aren't you, <laughs> and they go yeah. How do you know? And I went, because FBI is the only station playing that artist. <laughs> That's why I know that you're an FBI listener. Um, so, uh, yeah, and then, then I ended up um, coming here and uh, and the door keeps opening after after 20, well, yes, it's going to be 20 years very soon. And I'm excited because the actual day falls on a Tuesday. Yes. So I get to do a wild card on that day. I mean, I've inhabited that Tuesday spot for... You know, it was a long time. I suggested a, a cover versions show, and um, which ultimately became Tune Up. And I remember whoever I was pitching it to said, "Oh, you know, would you have enough covers to do six months?" I said, "I can do ten years just playing Bob Dylan covers, and I won't <laughs> repeat one song." Uh, and it ended up going for a long. I think it was like something like twelve years. I think I worked out r that I played roughly six and a half thousand cover versions mm. on FBI. I didn't realize Tune Up went for that long. It was a long. <laughs> oh, it was it was an enormously long time. It was it was well over a decade. And let's go to Tune Up with the song now because I do have so many more questions about. FBI to ask you, but we'll have a break. You've chosen a song by Justin Towns Earl to play on Out of the Box today, Stu. What does this one have to do with tune-up? Lots. Um, because whenever international artists, I mean, I used to have guests every, probably every second week on um, on tune-up, and they would come in and they'd pick, you know, three, four, five covers that they, cover versions that they wanted to share with the listener. Uh, and I'd always ask them to sing a cover. So Justin Townsville, who's you know no longer with us sadly, but you know a great Americana artist came in um, this day, and uh, he was so stoned he reeked of pot, and it was <laughs> a, you know it was in late morning, and uh, and he had some good songs, and 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 at the end I said you know Justin you're going to sing a sing a song, and and he did this incredible version. He had such a powerful version. I remember I had all the faders pushed right down to zero on on the desk and I was motioning to him to move back from the microphone and he was singing almost with his back against the wall of the studio and it was still really, really loud. He had an incredibly powerful voice. And he sang Dreams by Fleetwood Mac, a beautiful version of a fantastic song. And uh, and then a couple of weeks later, we got a call from his record company saying, you know, would we be able to talk to you about using that performance of Dreams on Justin's next album? Like, not just him singing Dreams, but actually the one recorded in this studio at FBI. Um, and of course... Who was going to say no? Uh, so if you listen to Justin Townsville's album Absent Fathers, the very last track, 
is a Fleetwood Mac cover recorded on this wonderful radio station on my tune-up radio show. That's why I picked it. Thunder only happens when it's raining now. Players only love you when they're playing now. Women, they will come and they will go It was the late Justin Towns Earl on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. It was, of course, a cover of Fleetwood Mac's Dreams, and it was chosen by Stuart Coop, the host of Wild Card. Stuart's also a music journalist, author, band manager, promoter, and publicist. And just before we played that song, we were talking about your time on Tune Up and more broadly your time at FBI. You've been at FBI the whole time that I've been here, and I don't know. I've always thought that you were an extremely impressive person, Stu. You've had a very storied (laughs) life. And to me, that would come with confidence. And I think I was quite surprised to find in your book that you didn't always have that confidence or there were times in your life where you actually doubted yourself quite a lot. And that period of your life did coincide with some of your time at FBI as well. I mean, for someone who hasn't read the book yet, can you maybe walk us through how you were feeling? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, confidence is, is a, a fascinating concept in itself. You know, I'm still actually really shy. You know, people go, oh, you're so outgoing and you're so blah, blah, blah. You know, um, you know, I'm, I'm good at presenting that side of me when necessary. But, you know, I during my time at FBI, you know, and it's... It's 20 years. You know, I, I suffered from really extreme anxiety um, and, you know, semi-agrophobic um, states of mind. You know, I, I used to get incredibly nervous before. I mean, people, bless their hearts and thank you very much, say, oh, you're so great on the radio. You sound so comfortable and you're so relaxed. And, and that's great. Um, but behind that for many many years was was acute anxiety uh, you know i would start feeling nauseous literally from the friday before a tuesday show because i'd be going friday saturday sunday monday i've only got four more days and i've got to do this again now i love doing it mm. but i hated thinking and stressing and getting anxious and I, and I knew what I was doing back to front. I knew how, you know, I know how to panel. You know, I know how to talk clearly, as you've been <laughs> reminded now. Um, but, and I'd come into FBI and, you know, and I would be, you know, completely nauseous. I'd be being sick for, you know, an hour before I, I would do my show. And I couldn't, you know, I could never work it out because, you know, and it was once I got my first mic break done, you know, everything was fine. I had an absolute ball, loved it. But, you know, I still write down, that, you know, every show I've done on this station, there is a piece of paper which says FBI 94.5. It says my name, Stuart Coop. It says how long my show goes for. All of these things, because I'm terrified I'm going to forget them. Mm. I'm never going to forget them, mm. right? But my brain says you're going to forget them. Uh, and I also had a, a period when I, I found it really difficult to leave home 
and I found it impossible um, to get on a train to come over here to FBI. I don't drive a car. Um, and so for about two years, I would actually catch a, a taxi in the morning um, over here, and then my partner would come and collect me afterwards. And it was... It was, you know, it was really important that I didn't stop because, you know, if, if I, I, th I thought if I missed shows, then I'd never, you know, I'd, I would stop doing radio. You know, and I was drinking much more than I should during the, a lot of that period too. Uh, and I was thinking, oh, this will calm my nerves, this will calm my anxiety. And it was only, again, hindsight's a very wonderful thing that I realised that it actually wasn't helping. It was probably contributing Mm. to to my heightened state of anxiety uh, and then it was uh, there was someone you know who who worked in a, a very um significant position here at FBI and uh yeah he he took me aside one day and uh and he said do you suffer from panic attacks you do don't you and i said yes how how do you know and he said because i do too mm. you know and uh and he, he, you know, I tried all sorts of things, you know, self-medication being one, and, and all sorts of things to to confront these things that were going on. Um, and he, he led me in the direction of an online course run by St. Vincent's Hospital, which um, I was pretty cynical about, but I did it. And, and it was an incredible help. And it's funny, I, you know, I look, I look back on that now and... And I go, boy, you know, there was a time in my life when, you know, it was such a big thing to come to FBI, um, you know, and, and, and yeah, there were some years of just extreme anxiety. And they, mm. say, they say you can always pick a panic attack anxiety sufferer in a supermarket. Do you know how you do that? How? They're the people that are pushing a trolley the whole time, usually with nothing in it. And that was me because you're wanting to hold on to something because mm. you're so terrified that you're going to pass out that your leg you know that your legs are feeling wobbly and I could go then when I finally got to going into a supermarket I had a couple of years where I couldn't go into a supermarket mm. and I'd see other people and I'd, I'd go I know exactly what you're going through because you you're hanging on to like for grim death to a a, a, sh a shopping trolley mm. you know I mean for people who have been listening to me on the radio for the last two decades and who read Shakespeare action, they're probably going to be quite surprised mm. to read that section because except for the people that were aware of what was going on, you know, it, it, will, it will be not something that they will be aware of. But, I mean, it was one of the things that, you know, continued my, my great love for, for this place and the people that worked here because it, at, its, at my worst, you know, I had FBI volunteers sitting with me in the studio, mm. you know, basically not quite holding my hand, but they were sitting next to me and making, you know, talking me through anything and making sure that I was okay. And that was, you know, that was quite remarkable that, that you know, people would would do that and no one was ever dismissive or you know or, you know get over it you mm. know or anything like that there was nothing other than empathy and and support we're talking about that as um something that i learned from your book the book is called shake some action the memoir from Stuart coop my guest on out of the box today and i'll put a link to that book in the programs page on fbiradio.com you might learn some other surprising things about Stuart. who knows and if you hang around until 1 p.m today 
you might learn some more as well. But something that comes as no surprise is that Stuart has chosen a song by Cash Savage and The Last Drinks to play on Out of the Box today. Why did this one make it onto the show, Stu? Uh, well, like I could have played, you know, any of a couple of dozen Cash Savage songs. I always have to be careful saying how I pronounce that, Cash Savage. And um, look, partly because uh, Cash is a, an Australian artist that I have such admiration and awe for. I mean, she's a phenomenal live performer. She's really good on record, but she, you know, if, if anyone hasn't seen her live, and that will be a lot of people, you know, next time she's in Sydney or you're interstate, go go see her. I mean, she's uh, and and I put, uh, partly because her show at the City Recital Hall a few months ago was the last live show by an Australian artist that I've seen that just knocked me for six. You know, she's always great and her band are great, but this was just like off the dial um, great. And I guess I wanted to play it just to, you know, illustrate that, you know, an example of just how much great Australian music there is around at the moment. You know, it was a toss-up between Cash Savage um, and Grace Cummings, and I and I just totally, totally love Grace Cummings. And I saw her play a show at Dashville Skyline, which is a an old country festival up in the Hunter Valley, uh, outside of Sydney last year. And and I honestly was watching the show on a Thursday or Friday night with a couple of thousand other people. It was an outdoors thing, and I thought, golly, this is what it must have been like seeing Patti Smith in 1976. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was just so unbelievable. So, so I guess I wanted to play Cash because I'm a huge fan. It reminds anyone who is sort of going, ah, oh, you know, not much great music around. I go, hello, listen to Cash Savage, listen to RVG, listen to Leah Senior, mm. listen to Nat Vazar, who's another current favourite of mine. Could have played Nat Vazar too. <laughs> um, and uh, and and then let's have that conversation about there's no great music again, and we'll see how that works out. It's $600 Short on Rent by Cash Savage and the Last Drinks on FBI Radio 94.5. I'm holding on time to the same cliches. Baby, I love you. Cash Savage and The Last Drinks. The song was called $600 Short on Rent and you heard it here on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Mia Hull. I'm, of course, joined by Stuart Coop, FBI Radio's resident lover of Cash Savage. It's so nice <laughs> to have you on the show today, Stuart. Look, we're here because FBI is about to turn 20 and because you've just released your memoir, Shake Some Action, and through that memoir, a lot of the big stories in your life and a lot of the stories that people love to hear. You've met Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, Mick Jagger, to name a few, and those are the things people look at in you and see as impressive, but I want to know about the moments in your illustrious music career that you feel the most proud of or the ones that stand out to you, Stu, as important. Yeah, look, I mean, there are some. I mean, there are some I remember with... with huge fondness um 
Yeah, one I haven't talked about, which is which is in the book, is the day I got sketched by Leonard Cohen. <laughs> um, and not too many people can say they've been sketched by Leonard Cohen. The thing is, I can't prove it because I lost the sketch. Can you believe that? You know, <laughs> you get Leonard Cohen draws your face, and then you lose. Oh, he it. drew you. I thought you meant that he'd um scammed you or something. No, 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 no. He ske- sketched me. He drew me. No, we were we were having we were doing an interview. Was it breakfast or mid morning at the Hilton Hotel in the city? And this was 1980, 81. You know, it was Cohen's second trip to Australia, I think. Uh, or maybe it was first. But, uh, and so we're sitting, just the two of us, in the in the cafe at the Hilton. And we're chatting, and I'm a bit in awe of Leonard Cohen, because, again, it all goes back to Launceston. You know, my mum, you know, used to go out and buy me books by Leonard Cohen, which were not available, were not meant to be sold to people, minors, not people who work in mines, but people under the age of 18. But my mum didn't subscribe to that notion, so she would go in and buy them for me. And um, and so, you know, and, and Leonard Cohen was, was a huge, huge figure in my life. And uh, and so we're, we're chatting, and then he turns over the, the placemat that, uh, on, the, on the table, and he pulls, had a pen in his lapel pocket, and he starts sketching and drawing. And, I, and I'm going, what, what's he doing? We're doing an interview. And then I see the sort of shape of a, of a face. And he was particularly taken by the way that I was, I was leaning on the table holding, this is not good for radio, but I'm showing you. I was leaning on the table holding my chin with a particular way with my, my fingers. Mm. And he was taken by that. And so he was sketching me. Uh, and so he finished doing that. And at, at the end, I said, can I have that, Leonard? He said, no. He said, it's my sketch. I said, Leonard, it's my face. <laughs> And, uh, and eventually I persuaded him to give it to me. And like a complete and utter idiot, I didn't go home and get it framed. I just put it somewhere. And, and of course, you know, it was that time when, you know, you moved house every six months, you know, and some, yeah. Look, I, I live in hope that some somewhere, it was one day it'll turn up mm. or that someone, you know, got it at a garage sale or something like that and had, do have it framed or something was like that. Was it signed? He signed I know I've got one <laughs> record cover and it just says to Stuart all good things Leonard. Uh, I still have that. Mm. Um so the chances are that he probably did sign it. Uh so so look the, you know there was uh, you know I remember that with great fondness. I remember because it seems like such a, a a strange thing now, you know, going going for a walk through King's Cross in Sydney with Tom Waits mm. uh in 1981 because you know I always used to try and get artists out of hotel rooms and you know and just say you know let's go for a wander let's you know and and when i tell people that um you know tom waits and i and andrew mcmillan uh, another australian music writer who's sadly no longer with us that you know us three ruffians were sort of meandering down Maclay Street in King's Cross mm. on a Thursday evening as the sun went down. They go, Tom Waits walking through King's Cross. And they go, yeah, and nobody recognised him. Nobody stopped us. Yeah, what a life, Stuart Coop. And I feel like in the stories that you're telling me, you're almost an observer of music or someone who is um, interacting with it with some kind of point of separation, but you've also played a pretty active role in shaping the careers of artists too. You were the first manager of the Hoodoo Gurus and you managed Paul Kelly for a period as well. I want to jump to, 
a U2 concert where you were just about to kick off a tour managing the Hoodoo Gurus and you were talking to the manager of U2, Paul McGuinness. Why does that moment stick out to you? Uh, it sticks out, you know, it, it was really a, a, a defining moment in, in my life. You know, Paul McGuinness was the manager of then, you know, one of the biggest bands on the planet. And I found myself backstage and, and I was introduced. I remember Bono coming in and, and he looked at me because I used to have my photo in the newspaper, in the Sun Herald, and, and that thick Irish accent, which I'll do really badly. He says, Stuart, you look so much better in the flesh <laughs> than you do in that newspaper photo. And um, so anyway, I, I ended up talking with, with McGuinness, Paul McGuinness, and told him about the Hoodie Gurus tour. And, and he said, sit down, come here. And, uh, and during you 2 set, he just sat with me backstage, and he, and he said, find some paper, find a pen. And, and he said, when you get to, you know, Los Angeles, you know, you, you need to speak to this booking agent, this independent publicist. You need to, you know, if you need equipment, you need to talk to this person. When you get to New York, you know, you want to go and see this agent, you know, maybe also go and take a meeting with this agent. And, uh, and he ran through all of these things. I'm scribbling frantically and making notes and jotting down, you know, he had his phone book open. I'm jotting down numbers, hoping I've got, I've got them right. And uh, at one point I, I said, Paul, this is, this is fantastic. Um, thank you, thank you. you know, but I said, the, these people aren't going to know me from the proverbial bar of soap. You know, when I call, I'll probably get the secretary's secretary. And he said, no, don't worry. He said, you'll, you'll, you'll get through because he said, I will have called them before you get there. And I went, okay. And, uh, and so, you know, I got to America and I started calling people. And, and with no exceptions, there was like, yes, yes. Stuart, yes, yeah, Paul called and said you were going to ring. When do you want to come in? And I thought, wow, you know, like, it, and that was such a big moment for me because I'd, um, I'd partly grown up in a music industry where knowledge was power and there was a pervading sense that if, you know, if you knew something, that was what you had over other people and you didn't, you didn't tell people you know, how things worked, who to talk to at radio, who to talk to at newspapers and magazines, you know. You know, there wasn't a great deal of sharing in those days. There were there were some people that shared a lot, um, as well as, as Paul McGuinness. But that that moment in nineteen eighty four, you know, really did, you know, change my life. Uh and to the point where I went, Wow, you know, it, it a lot of it is about breaking down that that wall for young artists, which is what he was doing for me and for the band that I represented. And so, you know, since then, you know, if, if, if an artist or someone, you know, calls me up or emails me or, or whatever, you know, I go, you know what, come on over or, you know, I'll spend a half an hour on the telephone with you. You know, let's, let's just talk it through and if I can help you I'll help you and if I can't help you the two of us are going to work out who can help you and then we'll we'll go there and, and with all the artists I talk to um that you know because I do a lot of independent artist publicity you know and a lot of them say oh you know we don't want we don't want to ask you stupid questions you know I say you know what it's not nothing there's no such thing as a stupid question yeah, there's a, there are questions that you don't know the answer to, but that doesn't make them stupid. And everybody asked every question first once. Mm. You know, and I said, ask away. You know, and, and and never never be embarrassed. You know, if you want to know who to contact at FBI Radio, ask me. 
if you want to know, you know, who's a good PA supplier or, you know, who's a good so-and-so, you know, or who's a good whatever. You know, when people hire or ring me up to, and want me to do publicity, I go, look, I'm going to give you the five other good publicists. Mm. You know, you need to know who else is around and what they're good at and what they may be not so good at. Here's their names. Here's their email addresses, you know. And, and so, yeah, you, you, you're hoping to leave people, you know, better equipped for, for what's a really tough Mm. business it is a business um it's a, a thrilling and exciting business but it is a business and you know we know how many artists there are out there you know even wanting to get on the radio mm. you know i i'm forever saying to people do you realize how many songs get released every day <laughs> and how many artists want to be played on the radio or doing this and doing that and you know and of course when when they're in their own individual creative bubble a lot of them don't actually realize what else is going outside um and so forth but no um the, yeah the, the mcginnis thing um really consolidated maybe some sort of nascent sense of you know giving and 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 sharing but i've i've, I've always wanted to think that it was I'd 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 be really unhappy if anyone if I ever heard back that someone said, "Oh, you can't call Stuart Kirby; he won't talk to you." Mm. We were talking about Paul McGuinness in the context of you as the manager of the Hoodoo Gurus. So let's soundtrack that moment with the Hoodoo Gurus. You've chosen "Let's All Turn On." Why did you pick this song? Uh the usual first reason, I love it. <laughs> um, the second reason, of course, I, I was their manager, not for a long period of time, but during the recording and, and the release and touring of Stone Age Romeos and, you know, their debut album. Uh, and also, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a song about fandom and it's a song that name checks a lot of artists and, and records. Uh, it's, it's a song about, you know, loving brash unpretentious um you know rock and roll in all its glorious simplicity i think so that's why i chose it Hoodoo Gurus, it was Let's All Turn On and you heard it on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5, chosen by Stuart Coop. Stu, we kicked off this show talking about dreams and aspirations and we talked about a boy from Launceston with a massive passion for music and maybe not so much of an aptitude for typing. I mean, <laughs> Stuart's pretending to type with one finger as I say that. But if you could talk to little Stu now or maybe someone who's in the same position with, you know, a lot of passion and maybe not all the tools, what would you say to them? Keep doing it. You know, I mean, absolutely, you know, if you, know, if you want to do something, you know, just just you know, just do it, which sounds like an advertising cliche, doesn't it? Was it a Nike ad or whatever? <laughs> um, but, but you know, I, I'm where I am just because, you know, I loved it then and I love it now and I 
kept on doing it. I mean, there's, there's, there's you know, and, and I think if, if it's really in your blood and it's in your psyche, there is actually no choice. You know, and I say that to a lot of musicians, you know, and, and they, they, they maybe get despondent after one album or two albums haven't done very well. And I go, yeah, but are you in for the long haul? Because if you are doing anything for the right reasons, you know, you've got to be prepared. Like I worked with Paul Kelly. You know, he'd had three comparatively failed records before things happened for him. He's now part of the fabric of Australian, you know, culture. And I said, you know, are, are you prepared to do, what drives you? You know, why do you want to do this? Uh, and and if, if it's really meant to be, you will keep doing it and you won't stop. And And the chances are you'll get better at it as you go along. And look, like plays... An incredible part you know I have been lucky you know I've put myself um, in positions where luck could happen um, you know young young Stuart would be maybe wow you know you can actually do this you know 12 11 12 13 year old Stuart you know would have gone wow that's pretty cool <laughs> he probably would have just winked and uh, you know went pretty cool hey dude <laughs> you know that's all right all right so um and, the, and little Stuart would probably go gee hope you keep doing it for a bit longer i can't wait to see what your next memoir holds Stuart. i feel like there are so many stories left to come but for now it is just the one memoir shake some action by Stuart coop out this past week and i'll put a link to it on the program's page on fbiradio.com if you haven't learned enough about Stuart's story this past hour you can definitely Read the book. And if you did want to listen back to this story too, you can do that on our website or via the podcast. Out of the Box is podcasted every week. Stuart Coop, what an absolute honour to have you on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your stories with me. Thank you very much for asking wonderful questions and having me on the show. Can I have the show back? No, it's mine. Okay. Rack off. I had to try. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) I will let you choose one last song, though. It's by The Painters. Sunday Painters. Yes. Oh, look, this is a little trivia. It's a fun song. You know, um, when you you do a lot of things, you know, there there is a... uh, strange things happen. There there was graffiti about me, which I I won't use the language on the... um, on the radio on, on the corner of Crown and Favreau Street for about 10 years. And there, there were other bits of graffiti. The one that I can mention, someone someone wrote on a wall, I wish I, I, wish I had taste like Stuart Coop, like soup without salt, which I think was a put down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and around that time, a band from Wollongong called the Sunday Painters released a song called Let's Be Modern which I still don't know whether it was affectionate or whether it's a little bit of a piss take, um, but I am name-checked in it. It was played on the radio quite a lot in Sydney. It is, as far as I'm aware, the only song that references me, uh, and I thought it was a cute way to, to end end the show this week. Chosen by the great Stuart Coop. It's the Sunday Painters and Let's Be Modern. Listen out for the name drop of Stuart. Um, thank you so much for tuning in today. And yes, you can listen back on the places that I mentioned before. Do stay tuned after this song. Isaac Ortlip is up for lunch. Bye. Let's be Let's be on.